Hello, and welcome to the Wolf in Tune podcast, and I hope that you and I can stay in tune. I'm really excited about my very first guest, Ricky Bell. That's the Bell in Bell Biv DeVoe, and also New Edition. I've known Ricky for over 30 years, and um, we worked together, full disclosure, on the Bell Biv DeVoe albums. Ricky started in New Edition, he was 12 years old. Those guys were kids, 11, 12 years old, when they started to put out hits. And they had hit after hit, Candy Girl, Mr. Telephone Man, Can You Stand the Rain. They sold over 20 million records as a group. And then as individuals, they were all extremely successful. First you had Bobby Brown, who dominated the R&B pop landscape for a little while also famous for being the husband of Whitney Houston. You had uh, Ralph Tresvant, Johnny Gill, also with solo records that were very successful. And you had the group Belle Bib DeVoe that put out the first album, Poison, which combined hip-hop and R&B and successfully crossed over to pop, which changed pop music forever. Ricky is an unusually humble artist and generous human being, and I think you're going to get a sense from this podcast of the depth of his humanity, his honesty, his insight, his wisdom. Ricky has experienced the great highs of success and fame in the music business, as well as the painful lows of his struggles with addiction and substance abuse. And here he's very honest about it. It's no holds barred because he tells us how he spiraled down into addiction and how he was able to pull himself out of it. It was very eye-opening to me how the methods and practices that his recovery is based on are the same methods and practices that are cultivated through meditation and mindfulness. Of course, meditation itself is very central to recovery, but he explains how other tenets, such as gratitude practice, service to others, and prayer, are also instrumental. And I'm also indebted to Ricky for having introduced me to the phrase, your ego is not your amigo, a phrase I use ad infinitum, or as my students would say, ad nauseum. The ego being very problematic for all of us, but especially for those in the limelight, like artists. So without further ado, here is Ricky Bell. Here we go. Here we go. Remember that? Yeah. Here yeah, we go. Uh, now's the B turn. There you go. Right. Everybody rise up. So welcome, Ricky Bell. Thank you for having me, Richard Wolf. Great to see you again. It's been it's always good to see you, man. So let's get right into it. Let's just dive right into it. Okay. What are you doing here right now? Well, what I'm doing here is picking up my book that you just wrote and put out called In Tune, Music as the Bridge to Mindfulness, which I think is an absolutely amazing name. Just from the first words, In Tune, it hits home with me. And thank you for this book. Thank you for writing it. And thanks for signing it. And thanks for thinking of me when you did write it. Oh, my God. That's, I, uh, that's, I appreciate <laughs> it. That's stunning. I, I'm speechless, almost speechless, because oh. I'm still talking, but I mean, that's breathtaking. <laughs> oh, was, thank you. That's not why I asked this question. All right, maybe we should start. Thank you very much. You got way. it. Thank you. You've always been, you know, we've known each other. It's no secret. Yeah. We've known each other a long time, 25 years now? Yes. And um, we started uh, with the poison. No, we started even before that with Laquan. I think we did, and I actually think it's been uh, longer than 25 years, because the year 2020 is the 30th anniversary of Belle Bib DeVoe. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right. Okay, I stand. You know, math was never my strong suit. <laughs> it's okay. Which is why I'm not a computer scientist. There you go. But, uh, you're right. It's been 30 years, yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, let's let's talk about um, more important subjects than how long I've known you. Um, so where do we start? Well, I, w- I want to start with what... This is one of the first questions I ask people, is Mm -hmm. what got you into meditation to begin with? Well, for me, um, meditation became prayer and meditation became a significant tool of recovery for me. Um, As you know, um, I uh, struggled with addiction for many years. And, um, 
you know, pra- the practice of just spiritual principles in general, um, starting with honesty and surrender, and a big principle being, um, you know, prayer, dependence on God, my creator, and meditating is became a huge source for me in my recovery. Right. So this is something that's pr- relatively recent for you. Yes. In the last few years. Yes. Now you started mm-hmm. when you were just a wee, what, 12 years old? Yeah. I, had, I started when I was 12 years old. Um, uh, we started New Edition right. when I was 12, even before that, because we would break up and get back together. But once I got, to, when, when I turned 12, we got together and stayed together and had our first record out when I was 15. So you guys got together in talent shows, right? Yeah, we were friends before we started. In Boston. In Boston. Before we started singing together, we played in the same basketball league, 13 and under basketball league, myself, Mike, and Bobby. And we went to a talent show one day, and we saw this group perform, and we heard the girls screaming, and we, you know, bell rang, the light bulb went off. We said, that's what we want to do. Yeah, yeah, and so uh, it w- we're, who was not in the group at that point? Was Ronnie in the group? Ronnie wasn't in the group, no. and Ralph wasn't in the group. Oh no! No, I I sang with Ralph, you know, prior to entering New Edition. So it was Ricky and Ralph is what we were called. And when we got New Edition together, I said, "Hey, you got to meet my boy Ralph." And so it was the four of us until we um, started recording the Candy Girl album. Then Brooke brought his nephew Ronnie into the group. So how many years was it between the time you guys started to sing together and you made your first record? Three years. Three years. Yeah, three years. You've been, okay, so then with New Edition, then that blew up. That was in the early 80s, That was in the early 80s. 1983 was uh, the year Candy Girl came out, was our first single. And you guys were, you were 15 at the time. I was 15 at the time. Wow. And yeah. you were patterned after the Jackson 5. Was that the inspiration? For yeah. That? Well, we, the, we, rec- we joined the talent show and we did a, we did a medley, you know, right. it was like Isaac Hayes and Walk On and, you know, then mixed with the Jacksons. We did um, I Want You Back and all that stuff. And when Marvie Starr heard Ralph sing, I Want You Back and The Love You Save, he said, wow, I love this group. Um, he had songs already written. He was just waiting for the right artist to come and record. And when he saw us in the talent show that he put on, he said, wow, when we went up to get our trophy, our second place trophy, he said, I'm going to bring them in the studio anyway. And he brought us to the studio. We recorded Jealous Girl, Is This the End, Popcorn Love, and Candy Girl, the first songs we did. Now, Maurice Star was already an established producer? In Boston. In Boston. He had a small label in Boston called Boston International. Um, himself, himself is on his brother, Michael Johnson, had a group called the Johnson Crew. So I'm wondering, when you start so young, yeah, and you really don't know much else, right? right? Yeah. How do you think that shapes your view of the world? Is it, is it I mean, can you have, a, have any idea of how that particular experience affected you? Well... Remember, at the time, we were very young, very green, very gullible. The furthest thing from your mind is that, you know, someone's going to steal from you right. or, you know, use you in any kind of way, exploit you. Where um, every little bit we got was more than what we ever had and more than what our friends, our peers, our family had. So we were, you know, basically happy with what we got having no idea that there's millions more <laughs> to be had right. and so we're very gullible um and 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 when we first sign and 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 they tell you you get five hundred dollars do you know how much five hundred dollars was to a, a kid that never had anything that had to beg my mom for money to go get candy and a soda or some popcorn or whatever sure. so it was huge i mean i bought a moped that was you know i got a vcr you know, never had a VCR. It was like if your house had a VCR, you were just like huge. You know, it was the VCR with the cord still attached to it. So at this time, it's, you know, um, I don't know anything about business, mm-hmm. know anything about contracts and these big words. And even if they handed me the contract, it was all foreign language to me at the time. It was right. like, I, you know, I can't read this. I don't understand. I can't get past the first sentence in this contract. So it's like... 
being an adult, you know, having adult responsibilities, but as a kid, and we were put in a position where we had to learn. We had to take responsibilities, you know, or, you know, just end up back in the projects. So, yeah. So on the one hand, you're really happy because relative to where you came from and all your friends are everything, they have relatively very little. Right. Right. So the the more that you you had a little bit more, so that made you you relatively you were happy. Yeah. You were Mm -hmm. making music. You were having hit records. Exactly. Went hit after hit. Yes. And it was pop. These were pop hits. So they crossed over yeah, they from crossed R&B. Over. Yeah, and, but, and then we didn't, we didn't know the difference of R&B, pop, you know, Billboard magazine, R&R. We, we didn't understand anything about how the record business worked. Right. You just knew you guys were popular. You, you know, you <laughs> right. go to a gas station. I remember going to a gas station here right. in Candy Girl, wow. and, you know, That's over crazy. the loudspeakers. That's crazy. And going, wow. Wow. Um, and so you had all this happening, and right. behind the scenes, mm-hmm. you were completely innocent, and like you said, they were stealing. You, yeah. were, you were given unfair, right. grossly unfair deals, which today right. would be much harder for people <coughs> to get away with. Uh, it's a different era, I think, in terms of that yeah. than it was back then. And so, but your state of mind, yeah. before you learned how badly <laughs> you had missed out, right. was positive, I, I'm, yeah, it was, I'm it guessing. Was, it was very positive and young, wild, and free. You know, I, I look back on those times like, I think God had a plan because if I had all of that money, right, at 17, 19 years old, I don't know if I would be here right now based on the mindset that I had and not being used to having anything because even the money that I did make, I did not manage it well. Right. You know, regardless if I had the 20, 30 million that, you know, Right. that I could have had. So I, I just think that it was in some way, I, I don't think I would have been very responsible with that much. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could see, uh, <laughs> I could see <laughs> yes. that you spending money uh, back in the 90s mm-hmm. when Belle Biv DeVoe was very successful. It, exactly. You weren't that, uh, shall we say, frugal? Not or, uh, you know, strategic with it, how you were spending money then. Exactly. I showed right. up every after every tour. I, I pulled up to your house or to the studio with a different car. You yeah. know, it, almost yeah. daily. I yeah. You know, I had two or three cars in my garage and I'm single living by myself in a five-bedroom home up in Woodland Hills. I mean, what, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I couldn't say anything to you because <laughs> I wouldn't have listened to you. Anyone. <laughs> Trust me, okay. people tried. Okay. People tried to yeah. say a lot to me. Even my accountants, they tried. You know, hey, yeah. invest in this, invest in that. Ah, what is that? Come on, right? Even other people in the business tried to tell me. So you guys enjoyed a really great run yes. in the eighties. Yep. Um, enormously popular. Uh, Bobby Brown broke off. Yes. And he kind of filled Michael Jackson's spot there for a while. Yeah, man. It was just amazing. He was nine times platinum or something. Yeah, exactly. He went, and uh, Bobby had been one of the lead singers in New Edition. Then he goes off solo. Yeah. Don't Be Cruel and My Prerogative. Oh, my God. These amazing records. Yeah. And um, it's not only in... uh, so you say R and B culture? It's all over the pop landscape. Yeah, that Bobby Brown is kind of his his looming presence looms over everything. Absolutely. And then, so you guys now um, you you get Johnny Gill to come in, right? Yeah. So right. so he took kind of Bobby's slot. Well, I guess you could say that from a public standpoint, but the idea to put Johnny Gill in the group. When it was the four of us, Ralph, we knew Ralph was going to go solo. Right. After the next album. Right. You know, like our image was always to have a five-man group. You know, one lead singer, the four guys, stepping choreography, just that whole look in the background. So that was one reason. Another reason was to help us having another strong male singer, young male singer, to help us transition from the bubblegum sound into the young adult r&b sound right and johnny was like that perfect voice to help bridge that gap that we were trying to you know transition into right and that was the any heartbreak album yes produced by jimmy jam and terry lewis and then you guys broke off 
Yeah. Ricky Bell, mm-hmm. Money DeVoe, and Michael Bivens yep. into Bell Biv DeVoe. Exactly. And then you changed pop music uh, thank completely you. because the Poison you. album that you guys made, that was the first album mm-hmm. to cross over R&B, hip-hop, and pop. Wow. Right? Well, well, yes. yeah, that was the motto then, right? Yeah. Hip hop smoothed out on the R&B tip with <laughs> a pop feel, pop feel, feel to, to it. Nobody yeah. had ever done that before. Wow. Nobody yeah. had crossed over. Yeah. And what we owe a lot of that to being breaded with New Edition and, and our history right. with R&B music because R&B was always the inspiration for us to get into music, to pursue music. It was what our parents played around the house. It was the artists that we looked up to, the Smokey Robinson and, and, and Marvin Gaye and the Jacksons, the Temptations. So that was our bread and butter. When hip hop came on the scene, you know, with Run DMC and the Fat Boys, and we were touring with Jam Master, we were touring with Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and all these other artists, Houdini were like, wow, like, how can we? That music is mm-hmm. what we listen to in our cars right. or at the club or at the after party. It wasn't it wasn't Candy Girl. It wasn't Cool It Now. So for us, we're like, man, we because if you notice with New Edition, we would always have a rap on our songs. Right. So we were always, you know, influenced by hip hop as well. So with myself, Mike and Ron, we like that, nobody knew what to expect from us. So we knew when, when Jimmy Jam gave us the idea for Bell Bill DeVoe, we knew immediately what we wanted to do. Right. We was like, now is our time to, to, to have grimy, infectious beats that we could dance to, right. but still bring our R&B history into it with, with melodies and over the top of it. Right. Yeah. And it worked. It yeah. blew it up. You Thank know? you. And they didn't even want to release Poison. No, I mean, the record company didn't want to release the song Poison. Right. They wanted to release the ballad, right? Exactly. And I mean, this was during a time when it, you, it, it was even hard to have a rap version on R&B radio. Right. They would take the rap out of certain songs. Right. And so when you hear Poison, the beat is more of a, you know, it's more of a hip hop kind of a beat. It wasn't regular R&B. So as soon as A.D. Washington heard it from MCA, he's like, I can't get this record played on the radio. They will not play this. But we knew we wanted that to be the first single. So we fought and fought for it. We made the video and, you know, we were able to get BET to play the video first and kind of create that street buzz. So, you know, the fans were just behind it even before it got to radio. Yeah, people people now take for granted that the same producer Mm -hmm. could work with Rihanna that'll work with Young Thug. Right. And and back when you started, when when we came out with Poison, right, Right. that, that was not a thing. No. Yeah. If no. you you are a hip hop producer, you but you got hip hop producers to work with you. Yeah. And exactly. that was unique. That was, that was different. Very, that was very unique and different. And so that was ruling the airwaves, right? Like yeah. Bobby Brown, that that mm-hmm. sound of combining hip hop, R and B, and pop that ruled the airwaves. Absolutely. And yeah. then though things changed again. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And so up until this point, you obviously had a lot of pressures. Yes. And stress. Right. How, how did you cope with it? The pressures of the business, the pressures to be creative, the mm-hmm. pressures to perform and all that. A lot of weed, to be honest with you. It wasn't like, um, for me, it wasn't about, you know, anything therapeutic as far as, you know, going to therapy or any kind of recovery tools or, you know, practicing meditation or prayer or whatever. It was just that state of mind of, you know, staying inebriated you know, staying numb, so to speak, now that I look back on it, was just a lot of weed, was just the, the, the coping mechanism for me at that time, along with alcohol as well. I'll never forget the first time I was in the studio with you guys, mm-hmm. with, that wasn't in my house, that was right. a different studio, Right. and the way you guys were smoking weed, I just <laughs> couldn't believe it. it was like 12 o'clock, uh, 1 o'clock, in the, I'd never seen that before, I'd see people smoke, Oh yeah. but not the way you guys, never. St- I mean, you particularly, I don't want right. to talk about anybody else, but, uh, but you... Yeah, you never stopped smoking. It was like constant. Because but, it, it went with everything that I did. It was like, oh, I'm waking up. Oh, you, you smoke some weed. Oh, I'm going to the studio, especially to mix a song, to hear music. 
without being high was is foreign, was unheard of to me. So if I'm going to mix or if I'm going to watch a movie or if I'm going to write and get in a creative space, I had to be high. At least that's what I believed at the time. So it, it just went with everything we do. When we was recording that first Bell Biv DeVoe album, we would go, we, we did a lot of it in New York. We would go to the studio. We stayed across the bridge in Jersey at the Embassy Suites Hotel. We would get back to the hotel around three, four in the morning. We would stay up, smoke weed, and we would write out everything that we wanted to accomplish. I mean, and everything from what we were gonna wear to what the first song in the show was going to be, to the video concepts, how we were going to introduce it on the American Music Awards, like we wrote. We would stay up all night. And so that practice of smoking weed and being in that creative space was something that went hand in hand for me. Yeah, and but you guys could function. That was amazing to me. Like yeah. Yeah, With all the weed you were smoking from the time you woke up in the morning, you, you guys functioned. You yeah, were able to absolutely. go to meetings. Yeah. You couldn't tell by talking to you that you were high. No, because it was, you know, as, at a certain point, you notice with like when it comes to drugs and, and alcohol, th there's a point where you're doing it and it's recreational and you're having fun and, you know, it's party and it's all about having a good time. And then there's that invisible line that you cross where you're doing it because you have to and, and, and being in reality and just being comfortable in your own skin and a sober mind feels so uncomfortable the world feels like a very almost violent place unless you're numbed out in some kind of way. Why do you think that is? I think that um, when you don't learn how to process your thoughts and your feelings and certain things that happen to you that may be traumatic events in your life, whether it be in, in emotional trauma or anything like that, if that's not processed in the right way, in a healthy way, and you learn to numb those feelings and numb those thoughts out, you know, you, you it's, it's almost like, oh, this situation feels uncomfortable. Oh, let me do a line or let me smoke some coke, let me smoke some weed. Oh, that's the answer. Now I can deal with it. Now, it doesn't take the issue away, but it kind of turns off that pain that right. you would normally feel in that situation and so it just it becomes your it's almost like a a trigger oh fear smoke oh you know anxiety drink you know whatever it is it's, it becomes automatic so it's interesting you talked about the situation that you're in mm -hmm. so when you're making music when you're in the studio you're on stage right it's a kind of a high in itself right absolutely and so there you're happy and you're in a situation right. that feels comfortable. Exactly. But then the music stops and you got to live your real life. Exactly. And that's when things get to be painful and uncomfortable. Exactly. And I think for, do you think for us musicians, it's mm -hmm. more acute because we are so comfortable and mm -hmm. so feeling so transcendent and yeah. high when we make music. And then we transition into a state of mind that's completely, like you said, yeah. you said violent which I never thought of, but it's pretty rash and raw and right. brutal. Yeah, I mean, it's a, um, I mean, musicians and creative people are very sensitive in a sense. You know, we're very emotional. We feel life very acutely. You know, everything is, is, is sensitive to us. Um, and so and when you, you take your art very seriously, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, whether you're on stage or, you know, you finished an album or a record or whatever, when people hear it, you're very, you could tell yourself, well, it's for me and, and I don't care what other, the other people think or whatever, but we, we were sensitive to that. And when you're on, and you got to understand for New Edition and for me, from the time we started performing, even before we ever had a record, a record out, it's been scream, it's been high energy. We want every talent show. You know, every record we put out was a hit. You know, every tour was a success. It was just sellout. I mean, we would sell out Madison Square Garden four nights in, in one year. And so everything was just high. You know, right. we're just used to that high. Right. And so once everything starts to calm down mm -hmm. and then the records, every record is not a hit and every show is not a sellout and we're getting home and I'm like, like seeing like, oh my God, I got a bill. Like I actually have to 
write a check and 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 pay this bill like myself or you know call the phone company or the water and power company and figure out how like that was just all foreign to me like everything was always done for me so it was never thought of like oh let me balance my checkbook let me see how much is in my you know like okay i have this much to spend let me put myself on a budget it was just like everything came so easy so when all the cheering died down yeah and the hits your number one records yeah. you know become number 20 records exactly. and then they fall down one of the most traumatic um events in my life was the home again tour when you know because we, we had bell bib devoe success we had success as solo entities bobby johnny ralph but then we came right. back together our process for getting ready to go on tour it, it looks something like this we would have hours of choreography rehearsal we would have hours of just band rehearsal with just music you know figuring that out you know just vocals rehearsals and then we would you know we would videotape our rehearsals watch it critique it figure out okay that's not working you know we were very you know strategic and you know it's systematic the way we did it when we came back together for home again it was just complete mayhem i mean all of that science and how we did it before was just completely out the window we never ran the whole show on the home again tour from top to bottom all the way through until opening night in boston so we never knew what it was going to be. So you had everybody back together because right. you obviously, Belle Biv DeVoe, right. had hit records. Right. Bobby Brown had hit records. Right. Ralph Tresvant right. had a hit record, a yes. platinum record. Yes. A platinum and a half, I think. Uh, and Johnny, of course, yeah. was am am amazingly successful. So right. all you guys as solo artists right. mm -hmm. were successful. Now you come right. back together right. and the egos. And then you have all the egos. The egos. And so the, the fear for me was night after night, not knowing who's going to show up, if they're going to show up, right? Who they're going to be when they show up. <laughs> and what the hell is this show going to be out here in front of 20,000 people that we hadn't rehearsed, right. you know, yeah. back to back. So we don't, so just that fear of like, oh my God, like, doesn't anybody else care like that we're going on stage and we don't know what we look like? I mean, that just frightened the heck out of me. And then night after night, not there was going to be an event, but not knowing what was going to happen. So every night it was something else. Either somebody just didn't show up or the show went on for two hours late or Brooke, you know, had a heart attack and had yeah. to be rushed to the hospital. So it was just, and then finally getting home. Brooke, your manager had a heart attack. Yeah. yeah. And then finally getting home at the end of that and being broke and hmm. the foreclosure on my house, the notes on my house, and my car is being repossessed. And for me, so much of my identity was wrapped up in who I was, what I did, what I drove, where I lived, what I wore, who I hung out with. I'm Ricky Bell from New Edition and Bell Bill DeVoe, and that became how I lived, how I even saw myself, and how I thought I was supposed to be to the outside world. So when all of that was stripped away, I'm I'm in a state. I'm like, well, who am I? I? I'm like, I'm I'm fearing even going outside to show people. Look, I don't have it together here. I don't even know who I am. You're gonna see me just raw without anything, and that was like the one of the most traumatic events mm -hmm. in my life. And it was right when I found ecstasy and cocaine because that, for me at the time, was the cure. So you went from weed. Yep to ecstasy and cocaine at that point at that point yes because of all you know everything you just explained exactly i mean it became the solution for me it, it numbed all that fear and all that pain and it let my ego come back and i could still pretend to be who i thought you needed me to be who i thought you wanted me to be i could still be that ricky bell well, there's a lot of sides to Ricky Bell yeah. that I know from the beginning. Yeah. And the side that you're talking about right. is one side. Yes. But there's always been a side, particularly with you, mm -hmm. that's got a very deep spiritual soul. I think you've always had that. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, so it is surprising, but I guess when you get the realities of, right. you know, like you say, your house is getting foreclosed. Mm-hmm. These are big crises that you're going through. Right. And it kind of clouds everything in your mind, right? That's all you can think about. Yeah, because also the ego is says, don't go ask for help. You can't do that. Like you can't, how dare you let somebody know that, get vulnerable and let someone know that you don't have it together, you know? Go ask somebody how to how to refinance my home. It's it's practical. It's you know people do it all the time, but I painted I built this life and this ego running the show that I would not dare let you see me <laughs> that vulnerable and ask for help. I didn't think that I could do that at that time. Oh, yeah. So like somebody said, your ego is not your amigo. I think it was you. Yeah. That taught me that. Yeah, your, your ego, ego is, is not your is amigo. not your amigo because I, I I believe that the ego, in a sense, is good for confidence. And when you're being creative, mm-hmm. when you're performing, and when you're in that space, we all want to have that confidence and feel sure about ourselves. So in that sense, you know, I do believe our our creator gave us an ego to be used in a healthy way. But when it comes for you know real life human issues of trying to pretend that you have it all together when you don't that's when your ego is not your amigo that's when it is not your friend it's actually you know a liability and not an asset so how did you make that transition to know to ask for help and well i had to hit bottom i had i had to get to the point where you know the the cocaine you know and and the weed and all the drugs weren't numbing me anymore they 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 would not allow me to escape all of my problems and my issues like they literally like in a physical way actually stopped working like my body would would just get numb but my head could still i could never i couldn't get to that euphoric place and i had to get into a space where i was in so much pain emotionally and physically and just feeling spiritually broken and hopeless that I had no choice but to say, hey, you know, I don't have it together. I need help. Um, and I want to share this story with you. We were getting ready to go on tour, and we, we our opening night was in D.C. This was probably maybe 15 years ago. Um, we had about we had a couple nights off before the opening night. I stayed up the whole 48 hours doing blow. Ugh. Gosh. In my room by myself, oh, just doing blow, doing shots, right? Come up to, you know, it's time to do the show, maybe a couple of hours before lights. I can't perform. There's no way. I, I can barely stand up. And I'm fucked. I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I can't. I'm, I'm wired. I can't sleep. I, you know, there's no way I could perform. I, I Basically, I've lost my voice. So for the first time, I actually have to come out because before I was sneaking, nobody really knew what was going on with me. I would just, I was able to do it on the off days, mm-hmm. but this time it I crossed that line, and I've never missed a show. Even when I was sick, I've always gone on stage. So I called Mike and I called Johnny to my room, and I say, "Hey, man, um, I've been using blow, and you know, I, for two days I can't do the show, man. I'm I'm just physically I'm done." And they were like, they were shocked and they're like, wow, man, we had no idea why you didn't tell us. And, you know, all the questions came, but you know what, we're going to support you. And I had a moment of clarity because Mike said, you know what, I I need you to come to the show anyway. I need you to come to the venue and sit in the dressing room. So I sit in the dressing room and I'm laying on the couch and the lights go down and I hear the screams and they go out and the crowd is still screaming. And, and my parts are being sang, and the show is going on without me. So the moment was for me was like, shit, life is going on. Whether I'm here or not, they're going to continue to go on, and they have to move on. So it was like, wow, I need to get it together. Mm-hmm. I need to get it together. And so I struggled through the rest of that tour of trying to stay clean and perform. But at the end of that tour, I checked into rehab, my first rehab. Wow. Yeah. That was your first rehab. That was my first rehab. I did five. It took me five rehabs. Why? Because a, a, a crazy thing happens that I notice. Um, 
I mean, I, there were certain events that went on in my life that I used as an excuse to use, but are now just BS, you know, when things weren't going right at home and I couldn't handle the pressure emotionally or mentally. It was just too much for me and I wanted to escape. I use drugs to escape. Right. Um, you know, one time I had, I got two and a half years sober and my sponsor relapsed. So I was like, oh, well, I might as well, too. So just certain things like that were going on. But one thing I did notice was this. And this is when I really started getting in touch with, you know, spirituality and stuff, was the practice of spiritual principles. Meaning, like, if I could surrender in a way where I'm just admitting, look, I don't have it together. I have no idea what I'm doing, and I really need help. And just be honest about that, an amazing peace came over me because I'm no longer fighting. I'm no trying to, longer trying to control it and figure it all out myself. I can let go. Ah. And so, and then I read something that said, um, you know, because I've always believed in God, right? Mm. But not in a sense of like I'm practicing the word of God. I'm not really listening to what he's saying and how to apply it in my life. I'm just believing that there's a higher source and a creator and, you know, that runs the universe. And that's as far as it went. I would go to church just to say that I went, you know, I'm listening. I'm not listening to the, the pastor or anything. I'm looking at my clock the whole time. But now it was suggested that I, you know, I, um, okay. So I read something that said, although you believe in God, you've never really cleaned house, clean house. Mm -hmm my insides, so that the grace of God could enter me and do for me what I couldn't do for myself. And that really hit home for me. So the practice of honesty, the practice of, of, of sharing what's really going on inside of me, all of my fears, you know, all of my resentments, you know, um, just, and even all of my wrongs. Sharing with who? Sharing with somebody that I trust. So who who did you share it with? I shared it with a, my mentor at first, you know, okay. and then I, and then the people that were close to me that I trusted. So, you know, just and and it and it was a daily practice. It was you know kind of like a one time thing, but then more of a daily practice of just practicing vulnerability. This amazing thing happens, like this the the obsession, the obsession to use substances, like was actually lifted from me. It's like, wow, like I don't have that compulsion to, you know, to run to drugs, to not feel the realities of life because it didn't have to be an issue that made me want to use. It was just being alive, you right. know, like right. a, like a, in any addict's natural state is irritability, restlessness and discontent. And, and to get out of that, you know, so, so peace and serenity is kind of fleeing. Like it comes and it goes based on how other people or whatever the situations are around me. You don't have to be an addict to be irritable. Right, I mean, right. I get irritable all the time. <laughs> and so, you know what? And so once the drugs were taken away, I've, I, I also discovered that, wow, I don't have a drug problem. I have a me problem. Because I only have a drug problem when I put it in my system and I have an re allergic reaction. Once I put it in, I got to keep going. It's hard for me to stop. But once you take it away, I'm irritable, I'm restless, I'm discontent, I'm unhappy with, I have to practice forgiveness daily. I have to practice surrender and honesty and acceptance and service and meditation and gratitude consciously daily. Like daily, I write out a gratitude list. Uh -huh. You know, at the end of my, my day, I, 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 I write about what I was feeling that day. Do I owe any amends? Do I owe an apology to anybody? What did I do that I you know, would like to do over? Like I, I practice these things on a conscious level wow. so that I keep it in front of me. Wow, and you do that every night? Every, I do it every night. That's, that's a practice. It's a practice. Yeah. But because for me, I could get so caught up in life and in world and, and all of a sudden I'm like, I'm, I'm starting to isolate. You know, I'm, I'm picking up resentments over there. I'm, I'm manipulating situations over there. And, you know, and, and next thing you know, I'm smoking and drinking again. And I'm like, well, what happened? Because I have to practice this God consciousness, meditation and prayer 
I have to make it a practice. I have to make it a part of my life, like brushing my teeth and eating healthy food. Yeah, and do it, and you do it every day. I try to do it every That's single amazing. day. So, so the prayer every yeah. day. Yes. The forgive the the gratitude, the attitude of gratitude. Yes. Every which day. brings a lot of joy, right? Absolutely. It lights up parts of your brain with the same parts that that are happiness. Exactly. Right. Because what yeah. I'm doing is when I'm like, because there were times when life was great. Yeah. But my brain said it could be better. Let's go get some blow, you know, yeah. and really turn this party <laughs> <Yeah>. up. <laughs> right? So I had to yeah. learn how to be happy. Yeah. So basically I look at it like when I'm using other substances, right, to 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 get euphoric, I'm basically telling my creator this is not good enough for me. I need to make it better. It means I'm being ungrateful for what it is. Right. So I have to practice that on a conscious level and I every day I I, I like I literally roll out of bed onto the floor, onto my knees and pray. Before I do anything, before I pick up my phone or communicate with anybody, I pray and I meditate and I try to get centered. You know, it's amazing. Some of the things you've been saying are said in a little bit different way right. in, in the traditions that I learned meditation, like Buddhist wow. tradition, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, you say, I don't know everything. When right. I when I give myself up and say, you know what, I don't know. Right. There's a, there's a thing in Zen that's called the don't know mind, mm. and that's the that's the goal to have wow. a beginner's mind, a don't yes. know mind, to recognize. Yeah. So that way you can be open to whatever is happening. Exactly. And your ego is not getting in the way. Exactly. Exactly. The practice yeah. of humility and character building, you know, from the inside. I I I, I my experience is. When I worked on my character, when I practice humility, everything else falls into place. Because I used to have a belief that if I could just get my career back on track, if I could just make enough money, you know, get another hit record, maybe fulfill all of my sexual fantasies, all of these outside things, if I could just get all of these things, then I would be okay. If everybody else will just act right, like I need them to act right <laughs> from my wife to my to my group members to the guy on the freeway. Like you know, depending on all the outside things for my peace, that was that was my belief. And then I found that I can't. I'm completely powerless over all of these things. You know, it is a spiritual axiom that says every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, we're the ones that are at fault. Right. Yeah. You know, if I'm not the problem. There is no solution because the, I'm the only one that can change yeah. is me. I'm responsible for me. Yeah, it's right. a, it's such an established truth, but it's so yeah. hard to get to. Yes, you know Shakespeare said, "There's nothing in Hamlet. There's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so." Exactly. And then you said about being dissatisfied. Right. You're always you're thinking, "I should have more." You're you're comparing. Right. You're not satisfied. Right. And that's the root of suffering. Exactly. Is, is having an idea of it should be different than what it is. Right. And, Which, and I can have no peace right. unless I accept this person, place, thing, right. this situation as exactly the way it's supposed to be. Right. Right. Now, you can still set boundaries. Yes. But you know that you can't control. That's what, right. The only thing you can control is how you're responding to whatever's happening. That's the key. That's it. That's what, that's, that part is mine. Yeah. Right. And so with meditation, yes. that goes a long way. Yeah to freeing oneself from the ego yes and freeing oneself from these ideas and concepts right and the whole idea that we can know really what's going on unless we really just stop and just stop talking to ourselves <laughs> exactly <laughs> so tell me about your meditation practice I so mean, did they teach you this in rehab um how did you get they, around to they meditating don't, yeah each person is free to kind of get creative and discover your own practice with meditation so i've tried you know, different apps or just different things of, you know, because for me, um, you know, trying to turn my mind off is like, you know, mm -hmm. it's such a challenge, you know, and even just with daily meditation, like I just, I do spot check inventory and like I could just, you know, sometimes when I'm driving in my car, I'll pull over before I get out and just do five minutes of meditation or a minute of it just to, you know, to get recentered. And the goal for me is to bring my mind, body, spirit, and soul all together into one. Bring it and just be. You know, that 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 phrase, you know, be the best version of yourself is kind of like a, a, 
you know, <laughs> fleeing to me because I'm I judge myself way too much. So if I'm if I get it wrong, like that's not going to go good for me and I'm going to get it wrong. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I got <laughs> the wrong version. <laughs> so I want my money back. Exactly. So I don't go with that. I've, I'm learning to accept me, my past, my present exactly the way it is, you know, and I ask God to help me see my day, help me see this situation in a way that doesn't hurt so much. Mm-hmm. Right. What is the best way that I can look at my life and look at others and serve my fellows? And when, you know, the the, the core of any addiction is self-centeredness. Mm-hmm. It's all about me. Mm-hmm. The treatment for that is service to others. Mm-hmm. So when I can present myself to my God and how he can best use me that day, it is the direct cure, you know, to the self-centeredness. And, and having everything, needing everything to go my way and to be all about me. And I try to, with, with meditation, is turn down all the noise and just be. When right. I go outside right. in, my, in my backyard yeah. and I'm listening to the wind and I could see the flowers and the beautiful trees and I hear the birds and you know I hear the kids playing in the background. To me, that's just all of creation just being. Right. And so what I want to do is get in tune with that, with creation, right. with my creator and just be. Just be. Just be. You don't need to be a hit breaking right. star. You yep. don't need to be Belle Bib DeVoe. You yep. don't need to be a Beatle. Yep. Just be. Yep. I don't have, to have all the answers. Yeah. I think that when it comes to meditation, prayer, and, and, and depending on your creator, I think it's a very good idea that I need God. I think it's a good idea that I always need to depend on something else other than myself. So when situations happen in my life and I don't have the answer, I look at that as like, oh, this is good. Mm-hmm. Because now I don't have to be in fear because when I'm in fear, I'm, I'm in fear because of my own limitations right. and what I'm able to figure out and what I'm able to do with my own talent or my own knowledge. So that's where the fear comes because I don't know the answer. And now I have anxiety. So the good news is that, oh, this is good. It's good for me not to have all the answers. Because now my ego's running the show, <laughs> right? You know, if you're, if you're right all the time, then you're hanging around the wrong people. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't learn anything. Exactly. You know everything already. So right. what can you learn? How can you grow? Right. How can you see reality for what it is if you already know? Exactly. You think you know. Exactly. And you, you talk about God. And some people might think, well, you know, I don't know about God, but right. there's different terms for the same thing. It could yeah, be universal mind. Yep. You and, know, and I think uh, that people, um, it's based on experience, you know, which I, I get that, you know, there are hypocrites and, and, and a lot of us were grown up in, in situations or in families where, you know, religion was presented in a way that wasn't loving that wasn't non-judgmental, was very punishing, and then it was, you know, very hypocritical with the people that were teaching us that, you know, so I get it, and, you know, certain lifestyles or whatever, well, I don't, you know, I'm not going to believe in a God that's against, you know, the way I think or what I feel, but that's not, you know, my loving God, you know, is like how I would want to be, right? Right. You know, non-judgmental, except you, you know, my fellows exactly the way they are. Mm -hmm. Right. So and so I I get the, you know, when people have, you know, differences or, you know. But I think it's just in in some ways, it's just another term for saying ultimate reality. Right. Or the source of all being. Exactly. You use the word God and different cultures will use a different term. In our culture, we could say, like I said, ultimate reality. Right. I mean, you're not beating your heart. It's the universe beating your heart. Right. Exactly. You're not tending to the 4,000 taste buds in your tongue. The universe put it there. There you go. And, you know, you could say it's God. It could say the universe. But we all know it's not this being in this bag of flesh that's doing it exactly right there you go and um and so i you know when we're um trying to control ourselves and trying to control life to go the way that we think it should go it's almost like we're fighting against the whole universe when we're doing that Mm -hmm. because the the sun is rising you know the moon is that the trees are going to continue like the universe is going to operate you know and I'm fighting that, 
which is already in existence. So why don't I just be and and, and let it flow? The show's gonna go on with or without you, right? There you go. Exactly. There you go. So what specifically would you say to um, you know, young musicians right. that are trying to maybe they have a little bit of success or they mm-hmm. want right. to to make a life in music how to keep balance how to keep personal integ- integrity right. yeah. and, and harmony i would say it's it's kind of like a threefold it starts with yourself and and then it starts with your you know it goes from yourself to your your family and then your community and i think that when it comes to self like for me it was hard for me to grow and get help because I wasn't taking responsibility for myself and my own decisions. And I had to learn to take the word blame out of my thought and my speech. So I had to, to say, stop saying, well, I'm stressful and I'm using because the group is not acting right and, you know, and they're costing me money and this and that. It's like, it, it, it's just, it wasn't working. So that means, you know, my life will get better as soon as they start acting right. I have to take responsibility that for that. To take blame out of your vocabulary. Take take blame right because it just it was not working. Okay. And even for for a person like me, even when I was offended, you know, someone did hurt me, it was dangerous for me to have anger and resentment because of what I would do with anger and resentment. You know, like resentment is like drinking poison expecting the other person to die. Right. So it just resentment did me no good, Mm -hmm. even though I had a right to be resentful. It Mm -hmm. just it was killing me. Mm -hmm. So I had to start with an inventory of the things that were personal, that were that were defects, that were liabilities for me and anger and fear and self-obsession. And these things were just causing me the most harm more than anything. So I had to start with the character building of myself. The the And the reason why I spoke about, you know, I thought I needed to have all of these things for life to be right. What I did found is when I focused on, on, on my character building, everything else seemed to fall in place. You know, I didn't have to work so hard or try to control when the next show was or when the next record was or, you know, how my relationship, I just had to practice, you know, the will of God, the will mm-hmm. of my creator for my life and practicing, asking God, okay, what is, can you give me the knowledge of what your will is for me today, just for today? And then please bless me with the power to carry that out because I believe that we are created in such a way that we are only able to handle the duties for today. A lot of times. For the present I'm, moment. Exactly. Stay in of, the present the moment. Ego, a lot of times when I'm uncomfortable is because I'm too far in the past uh-huh. Or I'm too far in the future, uh-huh. and I'm fair in the future, uh-huh. or I'm resentful about the past, which I have no control over, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I'm asking my creator to bring me back to the moment and give me what I need to handle this moment. When I'm able to do that, when I'm able to be aware, practice aware, when I'm out of line. So that's the second that's factor? The, the, the second, that's the second. The, the, well, the first is all, of, you know, let me let me get my character right. Right. All right. And then let me get my house, my physical house, my, right. you know, whether it be my kids or my wife or whatever, because that's going to be an offspring of myself. Right. Right. Because those are the things that I worry about. It's like, you know, like, you know, that's the, the stuff that's within my, that, those are my responsibilities. You know, it's what God has placed in my responsibility. Right. Because these people, everybody's. And also, I used to think that this is not hurting anybody but me. This is my thing. Like, why can't I uh, that 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 entitlement? I should be able to go take breaks and, you know, and 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 use drugs and watch porn or, you know, just destroy my life because I'm only hurting me, which Mm -hmm. is such a lie. And it's such denial. Why? Because reality if i can be aware of how i'm affecting everybody else i affect my wife i affect her relationship with her family and all the people that i'm close to is affected if i die right it's not ego it's just people really do love me and care about me you know people are affected by my life my band is you know society is my fans are like this there's so and people that i will never meet 
are affected. That's the responsibility that I've been given. So I have a responsibility placed on me. And I can't escape that. So it's about getting this house, my physical house, my community, and leaving everything that I've gone through, everything that I'm living right now is to be of service and shared with others. It's not just about me anymore. It's about how can I pass this on to the next man, you know, because that is what lives in eternity. That's what's going to keep going on. You know, what I give without expecting anything in return, that's what's going to go on way after I'm gone. That legacy right there of me sharing that. And that's what's ultimately important to me. That's beautiful. Thank you. That's so true and so beautiful. Thank you. Thank so you. it sounds like the, pra- the the daily practices that mm-hmm. you do right. is the, naturally is what you're advising works for everybody. The gratitude practice? Absolutely. In your case, there's prayer. Yes. Meditation. Yep. And service, compassion yes. for other people. Yep. And, and trying to do good and give other people right. some shared knowledge or whatever it is you can do to help somebody live a better life. Exactly. Or when you diminish their suffering a little bit. Exactly. When you're um in a creative, you know, business where you're gonna be on stage and people are gonna be looking, they're gonna be watching you, not just with your music, they're gonna be watching your life. And they're gonna watch and see how you get through your struggles, your battles. And it's gonna hit home for a lot. It's gonna speak to a lot of people in, in deeper ways than even your music and your craft will. And that is something that I beginning to notice because I don't think that we are here just to be famous or just to make a lot of money and you know to have hit records or whatever there's way more to it I've been in those positions and I've always felt like well I I need another hit record because that's not satisfying me anymore you know I need more money like those those holes will never be filled with with those outside things but meaningful service and being useful is the key for me to happiness i really believe that so circling back it's like what, what you said before i believe it's like brushing your teeth or we talked about this <laughs> yeah like it's something you have to do every day it is. in order to condition yourself to to feel this way and to live this kind of life it's not like an abstract thing yeah. oh i want to do service or whatever you have to sit and do the gratitude or sit and do the meditation yeah. and do something where you're in service to other people most of us are not motivated by just goodwill of you know just wanting to do good a lot of times pain becomes the motivating factor you know pain is uh is the touchstone to all spiritual growth because we have a lot that's why in addiction they always say you have to hit bottom because what man what person is going to want to practice honesty and service and forgiveness unless he has to do these things to save his life. So sometimes, you know, we have to get to a point where all of our resources, all of our money, our talent, our knowledge or whatever, cannot fix the problem, cannot fix us. It can't, you, you've reached the end of your rope. And it takes that pain to get you to a point of desperation, to get you to a point of willingness to say, oh, okay, I give up. Okay, creator. Okay, God, what, what, what do I need to do? I'm just going to shut up and I'm just going to listen. Just tell me what I got to do because I'm scared and I'm desperate and I've tried everything and nothing else works. So, you know, when you ask what else would I tell young people, it's like, listen, you can try it your own way, you know, and you will become very powerful in your field and you will make it. If you're talented, you will make it. But don't believe the lie that that success is the key to your happiness because it won't be, you know, service to others, taking care of yourself, practicing humility, character building, you know, those are the keys. Those are the keys to the kingdom. Happiness is an inside job. That's right. It really is. Because real joy is not a feeling. It's just knowing the truth that even when things are not all right, it's still okay. <laughs> I'm still going to be okay. You know, 
that's that's joy on a deep level and i believe that you know happy joyous and free is a goal is the, the ultimate goal is the life that we want and it's not based on what i have it's just based on who i am it's who i was created to be oh is it, I think we quite, is there anything else you want, want to talk um, about that we didn't cover? Oh man. Um, I don't know. I think we, we, I think we pretty much covered yeah. everything, but I think that whatever, um, system, you know, whether you're a believer, whether you're not, you know, whether you're an atheist or whether you believe in God or whether you're unsure or whatever, you know, I believe that true spiritual principles are never in conflict. You know, love is love, right? Yeah, I you mean, know, it's, like it's, integrity is integrity. You can live by these things and still not believe in God, right? Because they will always, you know, they will always bear fruit. They will always bear fruit in your life if you put character building ahead of right ahead of things you practice that way of life you will always get what you want always yeah well it's been eye-opening thank to you. me what's what's eye-opening to me is that you come and, and i mentioned this before with so many of the virtues and the qualities wow. that we talk about that mindfulness practice is supposed wow. to bring you to compassion right That's awesome selflessness yes right? and tolerance and, yes. and the don't know mind yeah. and you're coming from it from from a, a divine point which right. which happens by the way in hindu culture and yeah. mystical christianity right. mystical judaism you're coming right. from a divine point but you can also come from the mindfulness practice and it's yeah. so interesting to hear your context both from music mm -hmm. and from the belief in god awesome and um so tell me how do people find you if they want to hear more and learn more about Ricky Bell, well, I'm 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 very reachable um, at Mr. Ricky Bell on all social media platforms: Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can hit me up anytime. Um, always checking that I have a publicist and I have a manager that's always checking my messages and passing on the important ones to me. So if there's any other questions or things that I can do to help anyone out, you know, that's looking for relief or recovery in any way, uh, I surrender my life to that. Any plans in the fall for the fall or for next year? Absolutely. Well, we uh, in October, we do the Japan leg of the tour. And then after that, we're going to come back and prepare for 2020, which is the 30th anniversary of Belle Biv DeVoe. Yes. So, wow. Yeah. So, new wow. record, book, wow. documentary, movie, the whole nine yards for BBD. It's gonna be really, really exciting. Wow! Yeah. I can't wait for that. That's <laughs> can't believe it's been thirty years, man. It's yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Unbelievable. Yeah. All right, man. Well, All thank right. you so much. Thank you. It's been, uh, you know, like I said before, as long as I've known you, thirty years, I guess. Yeah. You've always had this deep wisdom and been a very spiritual, soulful person. Yeah. And I guess it, it was always there. Right. And now it's just in full bloom. Well, thank and it's, you. That's, it's just in totally full bloom. And I, I can't say enough about how, you know, one of the reasons why it was so hard for me to ask for help was because I thought I had it all together. You know, I was always the one that was at rehearsal early and stayed late and wanted to do the right thing. So I believe, I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. I didn't think I needed any more help until I got to the point where I didn't have a choice. And I met some other people in the business, some other guys in the business that I'll, you know, I'll introduce you to that really stuck their hand out for me and said, hey, man, you know, I got what you got. I understand. Hmm. You know, let me help you. So beautiful. Absolutely. Thank All you right, again thank for you. having me, man. This is amazing. I don't thank do you, interviews Ricardo. like this, so this is very rare for me. This is really exciting, man. So, you know, thank you for this book. I cannot wait to get into this. This comes right on time because I'm about to go on tour, and, and it'll be a very important tool in me getting ready for my day and then winding down as I sit in my bath with the candles lit. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
<laughs> and meditating after the show. So thank you so much for this. Great. Right, thank you so much. Got it. Thank you. All right. That was a stone groove, not to mention a lot of fun. Um, thank you again, Ricky Bell. And Ricky can be followed on uh, Instagram and all social media with his handle, which is at Mr. Ricky Bell. And uh, Mr. is spelled M-R. Ricky is R-I-C-K-Y. And Bell is B-E-L-L, so at Mr. Ricky Bell. And Ricky wants you to know that this is the 30th anniversary of the release of Bell Biv DeVoe's first album, Poison, which has sold about 4 million records. And I also would like to uh, encourage you, my new listeners, to follow us on our social media, which is at Wolf in Tune. And Wolf is spelt like the animal, which is W-O-L-F, in tune. That's one word. It's also the title of my book was in tune. Music is a bridge to mindfulness. So that's the connection there. And we're also on all social media. And I would like to uh, invite you to please share the podcast with your friends, give us a good review, subscribe to us if you enjoyed what you heard and you think you might enjoy what you will be hearing. I also want to thank Christina Higa for uh, helping us produce this podcast. I want to thank the, uh, the great intern, James Leno. And of course, I have to thank the incomparable, multi-talented co-producer, Hannah Bowers. Until next time, stay in tune.